I took the lead. Somebody's heart. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is the greatest co-host of all time. And he's a really good good friend, and I just I feel privileged to, to be here with him. It's Hank. I wasn't going to originally be here. I was going to be in Denmark accepting the greatest co-host of all time award. But I thought it was really important to do this episode. This is a, a, a big episode. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. It's the second part of our Greatest Movies of All Time segment, which we started last July during the reboot period of Death by DVD. And it's where we compile a list of the movies we feel are the greatest of all time in no particular order because we said so. Yes, it's going to be a bunch of random bullshit, basically, but they're all great movies, and one of which Hank doesn't even know what it is yet. And we have a mystery title, which uh, initially, well, it drove me crazy at first, and uh, the only hint you gave me is it came from 1987, and I might not agree with it. So I immediately went and looked up every movie that came out in 1987, and I shot like 30 or 40 at you all of which you denied them being until I just realized, even if I got it right, you weren't going to fucking tell me. So I, I gave up. You never hit it. You never got it. Oh, wow. Well, uh, I still, I, I got a little fanatical that night and just you know went over that list over and over and over again, and I can't find anything. If it had been The Lost Boys, I think I would have fought you. That that is, I don't feel The Lost Boys is one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, if Alex Winters had been in it a little bit longer, then it would have been. You're still going to fight me over it. I know you will. I uh, I have a pick that I think is a little debatable, but I'm going to try and uh, eloquently dress it up. <laughs> You're going to put a shimmy on that pig, a little shine? I have some reasons behind it. I, I at least formulated my reasons as to why it's on my greatest movies of all time list. So, I mean, and that's the point here. We're going to tell you the movie and maybe a little bit about it. It doesn't matter, but more or less it's our defense of why we think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. So, yeah, this will probably be a longer episode. These are always fairly long. So without any more stupor fiddling about, let's just get into it. You want me to go first or you want to go first? I think if I go first, it will give you the last movie. Which okay. it will be, I, I believe you wanted to do the mystery title last, so it should volley it to you and make it fun for everybody, forcing the audience to listen to the whole show or just skip to the end to see what it was. And they can look on Wikipedia in 1987 movies and try to figure it out. Yeah, play along at home, we implore you. And you know, also go back to the very first Greatest Hits of All Time episode and check out, I don't even remember at this point what the fuck was on that episode, Repo Man. Um, uh, Badlands, Badlands, Slapshot. All of these are some of the best movies of all time. Talk no- Radio, which Ooh. is the one I debated. 
I still think it's a great. It, I don't want to say the best Oliver Stone movie, but it's it's up there for me. So yeah, okay, I'll go first, motherfucker. So that okay, that uh, we'll lead with something easy because this list isn't as artsy and as historic as the last one, but we definitely have um, some movies I know you and I are going to end up talking about and rambling about for a long time. So we will go in with uh, the one I'm going to have to defend here a little bit, and I have some reasoning for. From the year 2000, Sexy Beast, the very first movie by Jonathan Glazer, who prior to this was mostly uh, known for doing Radiohead videos, and he'd done some Stella Artois beer ads, and I, I think he did some Guinness stuff. You know, the very long-winded commercials that go on for 20 minutes that tell some artistic story. Um, Jonathan Glazer is constantly kind of... I don't know, shit upon, I think, more or less, because... Well, he he's was... only made three movies, but they've all been, like, great. Yeah, so. I mean, that that's really where a lot of my defense comes in with, with him as a director, that I, I feel because his previous career or what he's more well-known for is uh, not taken seriously, I guess, as an artiste. His movies are kind of compared to music videos, and Sexy Beast certainly has a glamorous style and a glamorous look to it, and I guess... To an extent, yeah. You, I mean, the movie is kind of charged by music. It begins with uh, Peaches by the Stranglers just kind of throbbing and slamming into your ear with fucking almost new Diamine Tan, Leather Suitcase Man, Ray Winstone uh, sunbathing by his pool. And the story is about a retired gangster from London who is asked by a friend, a very rough friend, to do a job. And he declines the friend, overstays his welcome, but while doing so crosses a couple lines and ends up not being able to make it back, forcing our lead character, Gal, to go to London and do the job. Everybody in London realizes that the guy they sent to get him has now gone missing. They know something's fishy. The story from there, there's no need to really get deeper and, and, and ruin it for you if you've not seen it for yourself. It It's a classic British crime drama, but it's completely updated. It's in the vein of something like Get Carter, and it even has a lot of the humor with the Italian job to bring up two great Michael Caine movies. But just the style that Jonathan Glazer presents throughout the movie is so much different than other period, not period pieces, other British gangster pieces of the time, like uh, Guy Ritchie's intro with uh, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, and then, of course, everyone's favorite, Snatch, which are very stylistic. And when I was younger, I used to kind of scoff at this and get really mad at people when they would say Guy Ritchie is Tarantino but British, and now that I'm older... That's his style. It's very reminiscent of, of 90s Tarantino. Even, I don't know, it's like British Jackie Brown is really where I would place, like, Flockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. And then Snatches, where he just says fuck a lot. Sexy Beast is, uh, I think, a little bit more eloquent, and it's something somebody like Rob Zombie might need to pay attention to. If you want to curse a lot in your movie, check out, like, Sexy Beast and listen to how often the word cunt is used. But goddamn, it's, it's just... What other word would have been used? There's nothing... Uh, Horrible shit cunt cocksucker, you know, whatever the average Rob Zombie lyrical quote would be. But Sexy Beast has some eloquence with its awful, awful use of the word cunt. I, I, I'm just go, I'm unraveling as I, as I go deeper into, like, <laughs> referencing. Like, I've gotten into Rob Zombie and how he can't curse right, but fucking... And this was written by uh, Louis Mellis and David Sinto, so you've got to add some credit to them. But uh, the cast quickly discussing that... Ben Kingsley, Ray Winstone, and Ian McShane, all three of them together. Uh, I don't I don't think Kingsley and Ian McShane really have a lot of on-screen time together, but Ray and Ben together is what drives most of this movie, and a lot of it is the delivery from Ben Kingsley's character, who, uh, you know you know that voice, you know, that, that inner Jiminy Cricket voice that you have in your head that tells you right and wrong your conscience? 
Mine, unfortunately, is Don Logan just screaming, yes, 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 or no, 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 no at me. Yes, 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 yes! No, 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 not this fucking time, no fucking way, no fucking way, no fucking way, no fucking way, you made me look a right cunt. Just stand there like porky pig. Constantly. It's awful, it's awful, awful inside my head. Well, Sexy does, beast. The, uh, does your voice ever say, I fuck Jackie? Constantly. Fuck it, it constantly. <laughs> I'm just, what, what does that mean? I don't know. It calls me an unkink spunk bubble wanker. All of these things. It, it just tells me I've got to do the job. Round tree, like shaft. Uh, this is one of those, if you've seen it, very sparsely, but very quotable movies. And most of it comes from Ben Kingsley, where I had... I guess a lot of people's idea of him comes from Gandhi or playing a bit more of a somber character. I know now he does a lot of, uh, you know, overproduced, big-budget action movies, but this was a a bit jawing, you know, a jaw-dropping. His performance, his vulgarity, uh, just such a heinous, awful character from somebody that is usually so somber is, is just very stark and wonderful and, to me, makes most of the movie. And then Ray Winstone, who's usually a very masculine and uh, manly kind of brute character, a bit of a Robert Mitchum kind of guy. He's not so much effeminate in this movie, but he's certainly weaker, and uh, his range of expressions and how he goes through, you know, he has to lie throughout a lot of the movie, and him trying to cover up his tracks and him actually having to act and go through a massive range of you know, what this person's feeling. It's, it's incredibly believable. You know, I think all the characters, despite not really knowing who anybody is outside of what you need to know, they're all some sort of criminals or porn stars. They all have a lot of volume and tenacity. It, it's a very tenacious movie in general. And I, I think it's really not looked at that much. I don't, I don't hear people talking about it. I don't see a lot about Sexy Beast. And I don't think it's in print, even on Blu-ray. Well, it dropped off the face of the earth pretty much after it came out. And it's on a lot of people's not greatest of all time lists, but like awesome movie lists. And that's about the only place you hear about it. Just word of mouth. Uh, you in, like said something interesting. And I think that's probably the thing that's most successful about this movie is the performances because without the performers, the script itself could be a little bit flat. If you didn't have the, like the amazing performers that you have in this movie, because Ben Kingsley is on just a completely different level in the movie. Um, and like what's really strange about the character of Don Logan in the film, like my favorite scene is when he's telling about when he got the job. He's telling um, Gail, like, um, this is what this is what happened. And we go to a flashback of him sitting straight backed on the on a bed, just staring forward. And the phone rings. And that's what, how I kind of assume Watching Don Logan just lives. He's just sitting like, yeah, he's just his posture is immaculate at all times. And he's just like he's just so rigid at all times. And that like informs the character so much, just his posture in general. And this like staring ghoul of a man who is um, very much confident and he projects his ego and confidence everywhere. But at the end of the day, probably one of the most important things is he he is a spoiled child. I mean, that's like when he get doesn't get his way, he just starts pissing on the, uh, the floor in the bathroom just out of spite. So he's like, well, even with kid. that scene, uh, you know, exploring what you were just touching upon uh, when he begins to shave, he starts talking to himself 
And, it, you know, the way it's shot makes it seem like he's actually responding. Like, you know, there's somebody else in the mirror with him and he's just discussing what's going on. And like, you can't do this. You can't let this happen to you. And then he storms into Gal's room and just kicks the fuck out of him while he's asleep after convincing himself. And it's all because he said something about Jackie. And it, it just shows the... I don't want to call it psychosis or even uh, that he's a sociopath, but it shows that this character is incredibly dangerous, even to the extent that when he's first mentioned, um, they're all sitting at dinner together, uh, H and Gal and their wives, and it's mentioned that Don Logan's the one who called, and everyone goes stone cold. So before he's even introduced on screen, you're given... Even before he appears on screen, you instantly know that this character is menacing and, and something is, is off about him. And then his first, I mean, he's on screen for a couple minutes. You've got him showing up at the airport, and then they take him to Gal's house, where Gal has moved from London to Spain and is happily retired. And he gets out of the car, and I think his very first line of dialogue is like, I've got to change my shirt, I'm sweating like a cunt. So uh, the vulgarity and tenacity with Don Logan is extraordinary. And I, I think I've read somewhere before, I, I, I can't quote this where I've gotten the uh, information, but Ben Kingsley based the performance on his like grandmother. That it was you know, just <laughs> yeah, a terrifying fact right there that this was somebody he actually knew and that's what he channeled to play Don Logan. So, I mean, kudos to fucking Gandhi. It's one hell of a performance. It's, pro it's I think, the best in the movie. One of the things that I find the most interesting about his character, though, is when he um, ultimately meets his um, his end in the film, basically, yeah. is what's his basically his last words is what I just brought up earlier. It's just like, I fucked Jackie. I fucked her. I mean, he's well, Gal meeting. has the best response as he goes. Yeah, well, now I'm fucking you. But, uh, you know, he yells, uh, she's tending to, uh, she, or she's tending to the pool hand, and he yells, I, I love you. And that's what triggers her to come and start, you know, beating the living shit out of him. And, and Yeah, but him. Like, that, that's kind of my point is he's going through this incredible, like, you know, I mean, it, it's the end of everything. And he's still like a, like a child. What, hey, I fucked her. I fucked your wife. Just like the one thing, like he's that much. Your of porn a... star wife can a very uh, degrading toward uh, just a, not even just degrading toward women, just a very anti-human character. Uh, this character is the personification of nihilism and hate and ugliness, and it's just but that beautiful. That scene specifically shows that all of this literal hot air that's been coming out of him in this whole movie is just that he's all ego, he's all confidence, but deep down inside, he's just this little whiny bitch boy. Well, that's what and... set everything off that when, you know, the whole yes, yes, yes scene gal says, this isn't just about the job. This is about Jackie. And he demands the taxi and goes to the airport. And then we've got the beautiful front bottom. Oh, he's touched my front bottom. <laughs> it's gone up cold. It's the best scene in the movie. It, it's one of the, it's just, it, I, I can't even argue that there's a better scene that that truly is. Uh, I think, I think it's one of the reasons I ended up seeing this movie is that somebody, probably you had made a joke uh, about front bottoms and I had to check it out. And one thing I can promise you as an audience member listening to this, if you haven't seen Sexy Beast, nothing we have said truly can spoil the movie. It doesn't matter. You know something happens. And it, it, again, like I said, it doesn't matter. I don't have to get into that detail. It's, it's all laid out very bizarrely. And that's one of the pros I feel for this movie is how Jonathan decided to lay it out and present things to you. And there's also even, you know, adding into the dreamlike music video shit that was very popular in the late 90s and early 2000s that most people have a distaste for, but I don't particularly have a problem with. I mean, like, yeah, uh, Fight Club kind of looks like a Nine Inch Nails video, but 
I, I don't know. I like Nine Inch Nails videos, so I don't really see a problem with it. There is a very bizarre dreamlike sequences that all come from the for one of the very early scenes in the movie involves uh, all the lead characters. Well, not lead the introductory characters rabbit hunting. And throughout the movie, uh, a rabbit haunts Gal's dreams, and they're just incredibly bizarre. I guess the most music video-esque of what was included in the movie, but some of my favorite sequences, and every time the rabbit presents itself is when danger is uh, you know, coming forward with Gal. And I, like my favorite is when he's eating in London, and the rabbit comes to the table and pulls the gun forward, and it transitions to Ian McShane with a lot of clever, smart cuts, a lot of cuts that remind me of George Romero's 70s work, just very fast, very clever. All, all things that you're being shown are incredibly necessary. Just just well done, neat and well done and tight. Did you get the impression, because the impression I got when Ian McShane is asking Gail about the um, about Don Logan, like, when was the last time you saw him and all that stuff, that when Gail tells him and is lying straight to his face about what happened, that Ian McShane knows it. He just doesn't care. It seems like he is even happy that Logan is Don Logan is gone because he was an insufferable prick all around. He's just someone that everyone had to deal with throughout their, their criminal lives. That's proven at the end of the movie where Ian McShane takes Gal onto a trip where he has to witness something and then takes him to the airport and literally pays him $10. Well, I don't think he ends up paying him. He goes to pay him $10 for the gig, and what he says was, uh, I can't. I don't. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, "If you really thought I cared about Don," and then he looks at him and kind of laughs, and then tells him to get the fuck out of his car and doesn't even pay him for this entire job. That the whole point was to just admit what what had ha- admit what had happened to just say, "Don's not coming back. He offended me, and I he's fucking dead." And they might have helped him cover it up at this point, but he chose to lie. And and in the long run, what what I think almost makes it is he chose to lie. He paid his penance almost and and got to go home. And now no one will ever fuck with him because Don Logan's dead. And Ian McShane says something along the lines of like, I I have to come visit you in Spain and pay my respects. So I think it's it's well noted that they acknowledge what's happened, and it's just the fact that Gal decided to fucking lie that he he wasn't honest with people. And um, at some point. Uh, toward the end of the movie where they do a flashback with Don Logan, it might not be a flashback sequence, but he actually says, people ask about you all the time, and I have to say I've not heard from him, which makes me wonder, what the fuck did I do to you? So, I mean, it seems like the character Ray is portraying left, and he left kind of abruptly and just wanted to restart his life, and everyone's a little annoyed with him because they considered him a friend, and he didn't. He considered them business partners. And he's obviously at this point wanting completely out of the game and wants nothing to do with it because he's moved on with his life of sitting around on his ass turned into a, a leather fucking bag, an alligator. <laughs> Looked like fucking uh, idiot mean. Uh, it's one of my, uh, it's not just, a, uh, everything's a favorite scene. Anytime that I can discuss this movie and you can point out a scene, I'll go, that's one of my favorite scenes. Because the entire movie is just a great experience. And sometimes when you say, like, a British crime drama, people consider that, like, some stuffy Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. No, not in the least bit. British crime dramas, especially in the late 60s and 70s, were just high-octane, very tight, um, not so much particularly gory, but they always involved some form of the British mafia and, and a very posh, mod-dressed guys that all had these clever lines of dialogue of whatever the fuck 
English was going on in, in Great Britain at that time period. Some of it's just, you know, you have to watch it with a translation because these terms were just never widely used over here. And it's just a completely different genre. You know, none of it by any means is stuffy. And, you know, something like this and Snatch, which I kind of shit upon, but I, I like Guy Ritchie. Well, I, I, well, I, I wouldn't say like Guy Ritchie, but... <laughs> one of the things that I do find interesting, this is completely off the subject for the most part. Um, I don't hate him, Michael, but... Michael Caine had a, like a, a vast career over the years. And Michael Caine. he had a long career in the 1970s of being in like crime films he was a badass man i mean git carter i reference constantly and if you uh checked out my solo show i talked about it a whole lot on there but that that's really one of my favorite movies which will eventually appear on this list but with like michael Caine, when they cast him in batman as the prompt british butler alfred pennyworth or whatever his name is um what the fuck is that accent because that is a tough and rumble fucking accent in England. It is not a, I'm a butler. You know what? Yeah, he sounds like fucking uh, Ian Machine or Don Logan in the like. Yeah, in it really does. Fucking sexy beast. So it's just weird that they chose Michael Caine because Michael Caine, like, he's British, but I mean, I can't, I think it's a Cockney accent he has, but, and that's a, like, a working class accent. That is not a feat British. Um, well, that's like, one of the things, too, about, um, you know, it's, it, we talk about Italian films and, and the different type of accents and voice actors. Well, I don't know if we have so much on, on this new Death by DVD, but back in the day, we used to talk about voice actors and things a lot. But when you get to the UK, there is such a vast uh, collection of areas. But when, you know, you, you're in America, you just have this one idea of, you know, this chip, chip, cheerio British accent. And, you know, there's a country accent. There's the, the the far side of the country accent. There's so many different dialects. The Welsh have their own accent. Of course, you've got the Scottish mixed in. It, it's just a clusterfuck. And, and Michael Caine is one of those things that I think people uh, generally imagine that he's an American putting on an act. And it's like, no, he's just a fucking working class British guy. That's his voice. It's real. It's just kind of funny how he's perceived as being this, like, top, well, like, you know, this very proper British actor. It's like, ha, he's from like a fucking, that, he's a working class guy. He grew up in working class neighborhoods. He, I mean, he could play you know, like in all these gangster films that he played in. It's not like, oh, I don't believe Michael Caine could do that. I'm, no, he, I, that's what his lineage is for the most part. Now his early career is, is semi-exploitation, and then it transgresses uh, into a bit of an action-esque kind of star going into the 80s, and he made a lot of more adventurous... Jaws. You know, yeah, exploratory sort of movies, and then uh, I guess as he got older, just got... You know, you get older and have gray hair, so you're just a, a soft old man and esteemed kind of guy. And also, too, uh, ignorance on American audience parts. I guess everyone assumes somebody from England is some great Shakespearean actor because of, you know, Magneto. Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> like, everyone's got to I mean, be on their level, right? Like, I don't know. Patrick Stewart started in Star Trek. He was in Dune, for Christ's sakes. He's fucking gurney, man. He was in Life Force. Um, uh, so is the great Steve Railsbick. That's his first on-screen kiss. I'm not shitting you. He talked about it on The Tonight Show. Patrick Stewart's first kiss on film was with Steve Railsback in Life Force. Now that is a fact that you can tell everyone you know. <laughs> uh, so the verdict... I am not going to dispute you on this one. I could easily see this on a list like this because the movie is well handled in every aspect of filmmaking with direction, with writing, with acting, um, with sound, with uh, music production, as in just source music. 
I mean, it's a very well put together. I believe film. it and was that's... Uncle, the 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 British kind of I don't want to say trip hop, but uh, you know, kind of noise techno sort of thing. Uh, Uncle did the soundtrack. Uh, they also worked uh, on the beach. Uncle probably with maybe with DJ Shadow. I don't remember. Probably, but um. Anyway, just for what it is and how well put together it is, I can see this being on a greatest of all time list just because this is not just, I was explaining this to a friend last night. This isn't a list of just shit that we like. You have to be able to defend why it's on there. It has to have other elements on it, like filmmaking elements that put it on greatest of all time. It can't just be like, I really liked this when I was a kid and I think it's awesome. No, I mean, it actually has to, has a little bit of criteria of filmmaking criteria as well. And this film does pass that criteria easily. And for me too, one of my excuses I had backed up in case you rejected this is this isn't a linear list of like the best one, two, three, four, five, six, no. seven, eight. This could appear in the very top hundreds, you know, I mean, but for an introductory piece into filmmaking, which, you know, Jonathan Glazer had done a, a lot of lengthy things and some shorts beforehand. I think he did three short films before this. It's just fantastic. And some of the luck being British and, and coming from a lot of studio work uh, allowed him to get the cast that he got. But what fantastic choices. And well, I think every film he's made has been some level of brilliance because I've not seen... Under the Skin is amazing. Okay, I think yeah. Birth is amazing. I've not seen Under the Skin. That I I, I actually didn't honestly know he had made a third film. I, I really liked Birth. Uh, and I what happened to Cameron Bright? That kid was pretty pretty awesome. Uh, he didn't want to grow up to be Jake Lloyd. Oh, well, that is a, a valuable thing sometimes. Child actors are horribly abused. Looking at you, guy from Friday the 13th that ate the candy whose name I can't remember but might have fucked Corey Haim. Um, but the one thing that does have to be a constant in all these films to make this list is they have to be five-star movies, which I consider to be somewhat masterpieces. Four-star four, are, four star movies are excellent movies, but five out of five stars are basically masterpieces, and this is a masterpiece. Like, talk radio, I think I even gave that, like, a four and a half out of five, so it just didn't you hit my... Like, slightly imperfect. It just didn't hit that masterpiece level. But I think Sexy Beast hits a masterpiece level. I think Under the Skin hits a masterpiece level. Uh, Birth, I would probably put more at, like, a four or four and a half because it is pretty fucking dry. Um, but it is an excellent movie in itself altogether. That not many people have seen. That came out and completely disappeared. And Jonathan Glazer, I don't really, I can't touch upon what he does now. I'm assuming he still does hired gun work, probably commercials, something along that line. He'll make another movie in 10 years, like apparently when his well, schedule he, is. It's not so much his style or, or how he does things, but he reminds me a little bit of David Lynch. And uh, people, I guess, forget the maestro. David's done, I mean, throughout his career, mostly commercial work and mostly a lot of bullshit, like big studio, dumb Sony fucking car commercial work. And it's a living. And most of horror heroes, that's what they did. Like, Fulci didn't wake up every day excited to do a new fucking horror movie. It paid the rent. He shot it and he got it done. They were guns. It's what they were hired to sit down and do. And, you know, a lot of joy, uh, you know, like Argento is a completely different story are on guys like that, that they put a lot of joy and, and thought and effort into their work, but not absolutely everything is what the director you know, artistically wants to do. And being able to shoot commercials, I think, is a great option for people because, yeah, it's commercial fucking work. And I mean that in the sense of a, a TV commercial and, you know, industry wise. But who cares? Who cares if so and so goes and shoots a couple car commercials? I guess they're selling out. But at this point, it's not all punk rock. I mean, 
these things aren't all one and the same. You got to make rent payments and things like that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about Sexy Beast? Or... I think it's a fantastic movie. And if you've not seen it, you should spend the $2 to get it on Amazon. I believe it's out of print. Um... Terrible poster. Oh, the box art and Very the poster are terrible, but whatever. You've got the side of Don Logan's head and the, the shadows of the word. Yeah, definitely that's probably the least important thing. But um, I don't know if you can find this easily on Blu-ray. I think it's out of print, but it's like 2 $3 on Amazon Prime, so you can rent it, check it out, uh, go to England and Spain, have some fun. Sexy Beast. Watch some uh, some super clips, super comps on uh, YouTube because there's Don Logan yeah, the super best compilations of Don Logan. out there. So there's actually one called the best of Don Logan super comp, and it's fucking. I post it regularly on social media because I just can't get enough of Don Logan. He lives inside my head and screams at me. Might be schizophrenia. That's sad. So we're going to talk about my first movie on this list, and we're going to call this the crowd favorite because this is going to be the audience favorite. Uh, no stuffy drama movies, no important messages, because we're getting straight into RoboCop territory. That's right. Fucking RoboCop. It's a goddamn masterpiece. It really is. Um, we'll get into the um, the Jesus overtones, <laughs> I'm sure, at some point here soon. But um, as far as an action film, as far as a film that says something, uh, a film that gets somewhat political at times, it just it has everything. The special effects are amazing. For the most part, the acting is amazing for what essentially is a dipshit action film. Paul Verhoeven's direction and what he ended up doing with this idea and this property is fucking amazing because so much of what Paul Ho Verhoeven does as a director is informed by his upbringing. He's what is he Danish? I believe so. I think he's Danish and he dealt with World War Two and all this and he's got a particular um, gripe with fascism. But who don't at this point? And well, he it, and that Ed kind Neumeyer of... as, a, as a pair, I, I think, are something too to take note of because uh, Ed Neumeyer also was writer for Starship Troopers, which has a lot of common themes and a lot of uh, similarities with how Robocop is laid out. And he's from Amsterdam, so the Netherlands. He is Netherlandish. So... Um... What he managed to take with what is essentially just dumb shit, and he made it amazing. Um, the fact that he added the commercial breaks in the film, that's a touch. The uber hyper violence is a touch. Um, the the weird Jesus overtones that he threw in the movie, because I don't know, you know, like Robocop is American Jesus who, who comes to like deliver punishment. I feel that's the yeah. Abby Hoffman character. The guy looks a lot like Abby Hoffman, and I think it's a little too intentional. One of my favorite commercials is when they bring up that uh, Lee Iacocca Elementary School has been shut down, and there's just a lot of clever things, too, especially the time That's period. an out-of-date reference. Yeah, that's that's uh, a lot of these references are to that time period specifically, and if you know, you're know you a bit of a history buff or into politics, a lot of it's hysterical because all of these themes from RoboCop are uh, unintentionally completely happening again. To the extent that you know the remake of Mo Ro uh, RoboCop almost had to exclude them, you, know, you you have such a bland, bizarre movie with that remake, and the original movie is such a politically charged piece. And it's again, it's something like Starship Troopers. When you bring that up to somebody that it's you know a very very political piece, they're baffled. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's about it's a, a goofball movie about killing bugs. Well, yeah, kind of, but. Except all the humans fascism. are Nazis. Yeah. It's... Read through the fucking lines, folks. It's 
plainly fucking there. And it's even more, I think, in your face in, in Verhoeven's translation of, of the novel. And something like RoboCop, I feel there is just absolutely no chill. It is just a massive anti-American, anti-capitalism uh, piece. And, and it's just the entirety of it from the idea. And I, I was texting you about this last night because it just made me laugh. RoboCop is the worst fucking cop in the world. He gets shot on his first goddamn day, and they decide to go after all these bad guys without... They don't even know how many there are. We're just going to go after them because we can't get back up. It's going to take 20 minutes. And the dumb motherfucker on his first day gets all this shit happening to them, and they decide to make him the super cop. Now, you couldn't get, like, some Richard Roundtree guy like Shaft. You couldn't get Dirty Harry. You had to get this dumb motherfucker that couldn't even... Well, I uh, mean, there's a point to that, because he um, I mean, it, it's, didn't uh, think anything about his own safety before doing the job. He jumped right in to a, a, a situation where he was completely overwhelmed, but he still is a cop, and he's still going to do it. So, I mean, somewhat he's able to control, they think, but um, his uh, human spirit perseveres through all of that. Um, well, you too have given right before that scene, um, the wonderful Miguel Ferrer states that we just need a volunteer. So they were waiting for the first cadaver or whatever they could get to come in regardless. I just feel, you know, if it had been a super cop, maybe that might have made things work a little bit better. You got a different movie with that one, though, because if you make the cop a Universal super Soldier. Cop, yeah, it becomes kind of a, a different overtone to the whole film because so much of this movie is about consumerism, um, private industry taking over Somewhat government agencies. Somewhat reminiscent to something like they live, you know, uh, buy, consume, just live and do whatever, you know, and that's, I guess, why Peter Weller's character is so perfect because they feel that it can just be essentially brainwashed to complacently do these tasks for a greater good that isn't ever really seen, that is, uh, you know, a capitalism pretty much. And you like where we're at now when people talk about privatization of like police or of uh, jails, which is what is going on. Look at um, OCP and RoboCop. That this is what you're going to be after. You're going to you're going to have a bunch of cops who are striking, and they just put in their own private fucking militia because now they own Detroit. You let a company buy a town, and that doesn't work out well. And even down to the, the bad guys in the film. What are they most concerned about? I mean, they're into drugs. They're into all these different things. But once they finally get some money, when they're hired to kill Robocop, basically, what do they do? They just buy stupid sports cars and they just like they care about consumer products. And for these evil motherfuckers, that's really all they're after. They're just after a piece of their dumb American dream, too. They're blind ass consumerism well look at um, even some of the repetitive things that happen in the movie with these villains is uh, when peter weller's character when when murphy is first attacked they are all sitting down and watching television and then during the rioting sequences when the police finally strike they stop on the street to break windows out to watch television when the character finally gets killed i believe that it's after no uh, that's the scene where the car gets blown up sorry but it's just a repetitive thing with them it's by consume you just have to do this that yeah the city's burning down but i'm gonna stop and watch i'll buy that for a dollar because this is just what i do it doesn't matter that they're they're good or bad I don't feel that there's any specifically good or bad characters in RoboCop because even at the end of the day, the old man is a all, dick yeah. too. He's the they're, head they're of the corporation. All just whatever. Um, and 
Miguel Ferrer is just a little weasel who's trying to weasel his way up to the top. No Dick one's Jones looking at anything particularly as like an evil villain. Like they're trying to do something bad. All of them are just trying to get to the top of what they think is the food chain. So none of their actions are really like an evil character's action. They're just all conglomerate, you know, cocksuckers. That's really the problem. Yeah, and like Robocop and himself, I mean, he was being led around by the protocol. Uh, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments, basically. And he um, he does break out of all that and sees that all this, like, old capitalism bullshit is meaningless, and he breaks free and becomes uh, Super Jesus and walks on water and kills Clarence Boddicker. Um, so there's just a lot of different overtones going on in RoboCop, and that's what makes it such an amazing film is just I think how the multi-layered it is. I think the whole Super Jesus thing, too, is, is a big statement on American culture and the uh, bizarre fascination with Christianity Americans seem to have and how even the essence of Christianity has become bastardized, bastardized, bastardized? Yeah, bastardized over the years in our country with these mega millionaire fucking preachers that I can't think of the Joel, wait, Joel Osteen. There's that prick. And then you've got even just guys like Billy Graham, Jim Baker, who's selling uh, coronavirus yeah. cures right now. Those type of people that have truly made a mockery of any compassion that could have been considered from Christ's teaching. And by no means do I mean this as an insult at all to Christianity, because there is a lot of beautiful teachings inside of it. But our culture uh, specifically, I say this as if every audience member is American, but uh, American audience only, everybody else. We apologize. We have truly taken the idea of Christianity and, and turned it into an American version, which we do with everything. And that, I think, is really a, a prominent piece with, you know, Robocop and being reborn and, and finally his mask gets taken off and you can understand that it's Murphy and he understands who he is. And if that's, you know, descending into hell when you he mean has he to fight. removes his crown of thorns. Exactly, you know, and the overtones are all there. People just <laughs> he even brings forth a plague on somebody. You know, there's a lot of biblical overtones, but I think most of it too is kind of uh, just as Starship Troopers did, poking a lot of fun uh, at our culture, and not necessarily fun. I mean, it's not. I'm trying not to get incredibly political, but it's not like we've done or have the best track record. I guess I can say so. You know, especially outsiders. Have the uh, ability to, to to look at that and make something. And what I think is incredibly unique is, uh, RoboCop had a cartoon. He wrestled with Sting. It became you know a, a beloved part of fucking. <laughs> That's the one you bring up. Yeah, he fought with Sting, Surfer Sting, nonetheless. It wasn't. It wasn't he got Crow Sting, Sting out of that cage, baby. He helped Sting one time, but it became this like a, a, a completely beloved, like the Toxic Crusader. Also, that that cartoon from such a, a foul thing like Troma. And not foul in the sense that I dislike them, but, you know, dick and farts and boobs and sex and something that definitely isn't made for children, as RoboCop definitely was not made for children, is is the comparison there. But it, it became so loved, and people completely missed the point. I think that's one of the reasons it truly is one of the best movies of all time, because so many people love this and have just no idea what it's, what it's making fun of and what it's about, and just the massive layers of overtones that this movie has. And it, when, you instant, when you said this to me right off the bat, I was like, yeah, RoboCop's definitely one of the best I get it. I'm with you. Well, I mean, even going down to just on film type shit, the direction, the acting, um, having Kurtwood Smith play Clarence Boddicker is a stroke of goddamn genius. I mean, I will always know him from that role. Um, the special effects, the, the hyper violence that Paul Verhoeven 
wants to always like throw have in. Have you seen the director's films. cut? I have seen the director's cut. It's even more violent than the actual. I unfortunately have cut. have not gotten to see it, and I, I've just heard so many awesome things that it truly makes the movie a much better ride. And I've just not gotten around to well, it. I believe Arrow at put the beginning out. of the film when Ed Two Hundred Nine goes shit house and kills that dude. Like they cut a bunch out of that to where it wasn't as impactful. But I mean that sets up the entire film of this is where I'm getting. This is the journey you're getting ready to go on that violence is going to be slapstick in a way. It's going to be so goddamn violent, you're not going to know what to do. And when they they cut it back in the R-rated version, it just it actually has more impact. It's no like it's it's not a funny scene like Paul Verhoeven designed it to be. And when you see it in the uncut version, it's like, "Oh, Jesus, this is kind of hilarious. This whole movie is kind of hilarious." None of this is to be taken particularly seriously. He knew what he was ma- making. He knew he was making schlock but he's going to put all of his little touches on it to make it as not schlock as he possibly can. And that's what he does. I mean, even I will somewhat defend showgirls. I, I have a theory that Verhoeven knew exactly what he was doing in showgirls. And that is the movie he wanted to make um, as he's almost poking fun at excess. And I'm not just... interrupting you, but I'm just going to interject. I, I really, really like showgirls. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a dumb fucking movie, but it does is making somewhat of a, point in all of its um, over-the-topness and all these different things. That's what Paul Verhoeven has always excelled at, is just taking something that might be mundane, like a robotic fucking police officer, and just turning into amazing, crazy fucking art. And I think Robocop is art. It's not just a product. It's not just something to be consumed. It was a piece of... and Emphatically, it was art. And then it became something else through all of its other iterations and directors and TV shows and cartoons and toys and all this other stuff. It's just like, well, you all kind of missed the point of RoboCop, but whatever. RoboCop Prime Directives. Check that out if you really want to see the, the, I don't know, spiraling, out-of-control nature of RoboCop. I thought your ninjas took care of RoboCop. Ugh. Ninjas, God, all sorts of Robocop. exciting things. Uh, it, this was a fun one for me to go back, and I, I always like to rewatch the movies uh, before we, we do the show. And I had a lot of fun just exploring RoboCop again, and a lot of the, the subtle nods to what was going on politically in the late 80s kind of just uh, is now even more You mean hysterical. things that are going on politically again? Yeah, exactly. And that's it's just hysterical to kind of see them repeating themselves. And I was referencing earlier an outsider being able to look in and make a movie that has become you know so iconic in, in our culture and has become, just like Christianity to an extent, bastardized into something it, it definitely was not intentionally supposed to be it's just very unique itself looking at his career because he kind of has has done that i mean i don't know what he's doing now but paul went from you know he Star- wrote a book about jesus not too long ago yeah so there's uh, i guess a statement about uh, where he's at but you know he went from showgirls starship troopers to the the first uh, you know reboot in the invisible man steer- series with kevin bacon uh hollow man yeah which i don't think is an absolutely terrible film i've heard a lot of good things about the new one but and then kind of just poofed away just you know kind of stopped and what's I guess shitty, or in my opinion of everything, is Paul Verhoeven kind of went away in a time that he is is needed. I mean, even you know, going back to the Bush and Gore election to now, I think his commentary and his mannerisms with developing a story and taking culture and important pieces of of what is everlasting and what will be remembered in the news and making something out of it is really necessary in a time like now. 
Yeah, and I just think Paul Verhoeven was a fantastic director. Like I be like Flesh and Blood, I believe it was his first movie or one of his first movies. It's a decent film. I don't think it has as much going on as like some of his later films, even something like Total Recall, but it's still kind of an amazing film on its own. Uh, a Rugder Hauer film. Um but overall I think Robocop is definitely a masterpiece. It's one of the greatest films of all time. And I think it beats out shit like Predator. Uh, it beats out Aliens. I'm sorry, Hank, it does beat out Aliens just because it has a point and it's not just a, a display of things that we can do. Whereas I do think Aliens is an amazing film and it can go on this list as well. It's another masterpiece film, but I think Robocop is more of an, it's more important than something like Aliens. I'm sure this will shock and all you as well as the audience, but I'm in complete agreement. And I, Aliens at some point will appear on this list, and I, it's a favorite movie of mine. But as I've gotten older and as the show's progressed, uh, you know, recording us both getting older, I'll always have a massive love for Aliens. I love the Vietnam story. It's a great movie. Yeah, I, I love the whole Vietnam War story. That's something I'll always be fond of, but I've not even watched it in three or four years. My fanatical... I've got to bring it up every every day thing. It just, things change. Things go away. And I guess you, if it's something you loved from childhood, I guess there's two frames of people, you know? And we've brought this up a lot with Star Wars fans and people that won't let things go and, and hate change. There, uh, ten years ago, I would have raged and absolutely hated a remake of Aliens. Now, uh, do it. Let me see what happens. I don't care. It could be interesting. It doesn't matter. I still have Aliens to watch. It really doesn't yeah. matter. But canonically, it fucks everything up. Well, they changed. A... You know, Bill Paxton wasn't a, a black woman. I, I, okay, I don't care. I, I don't care what you do to these characters. It doesn't matter at all because the original still exists, and it, it was important to me when it was important. Well, hold to on me. a second, because you're technically not wrong there, because I think um, Paxton is a black woman, shocking dark, Ties film played by Goretta Goretta. <laughs> no oh wow, you know what? Uh, you're right. That is the exact same <laughs> characters. That yeah, that is. You know, it's funny, we brought up shows. They've already done it in Italy in the late 80s. Yeah, they already changed the world. But I, we were talking about Showgirls a little while ago, and I think I brought this up when we were uh, doing the Joe D'Amato video nasty thing. But that's what he was working on when he died. Joe D'Amato was trying to do the Italian remake of Showgirls, which I, I would have nice. loved to have seen. I, I am very sad that he did not get to have finished that film. It I don't know how filthier you could have made it, and who would he have More picked? More scenes of penetration, I'm assuming. Well, who would have played Kyle MacLachlan? That's what I want to know, you know? Franco Nero, of course. God, that would have been, even if it was 1998, 1999. No, actually, it, it probably would have been George Eastman. Yeah, even the late 90s George Eastman, I would have taken it. I would have gone with it. But yeah, no debate out of me, no, no argument out of me. RoboCop is one of the best movies of all time, and you know, and no matter what way you look at it, it's still, if it's just a fucking action movie to you, it's still one of the best. And as we've been saying, RoboCop is not over. It didn't make it, like, say its piece and leave the room. It's continually morphing and <clears throat> regenerating itself over the years and being more important as different things happen in culture. It's like it's as relevant today as it was in 1987. Even probably more so than now. I think it's definitely got a lot of power and should be appreciated for its satire alone. And just how amazing it is overall. Satire as well as just base elements of filmmaking and making a kick-ass action film. So I guess it's time to move on. That's you. All right, 1988, David Cronenberg, Dead Ringers. 
there are so many reasons this is one of the best movies of all time. I don't know where to really dig into, so I'm going to start with Jeremy, Jeremy Irons. Fucking Irons. Is Jeremy Irons a reason? Yeah, that's that's the one I'm going to really stick to. And it, 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 both him and Cronenberg combined is what makes this movie, but Jeremy Irons' performance truly is one of the masterful things. And I could spend a lot of time talking to you how it was filmed and, and, and all the intricacies behind that, but I'm not going to bother wasting time because I'll probably come back and do an entire whole thing about Dead Ringers sometime soon. Jeremy Irons plays twins. Uh, the film itself is about twin gynecologists that, from the very beginning of the movie, uh, the ending is very mirrored to it. You have an understanding that these two are almost one and the same. And there's many references to the you know original sideshow Siamese twins, Chang and Ang, and their uh, compatibility and their very bizarre deaths between each other. The story is based on... I might get their names wrong. I believe it's Cyril and Stuart Marcus, who were twin brothers that were gynecologists that died under very mysterious causes in 1975. One of an apparent overdose and the other, they've never really been able to pin down what happened. Cronenberg uh, based his movie off of a novel called Twins, who unfortunately, I have completely forgotten who wrote it because I fucking suck. Hey, Irrelevant. You know, yeah, check it out. You can Google it. You you have a Google machine probably in your hands, so do that on your own. Cronenberg based it off the novel Twins and obviously took a lot of uh, thought into his own, you know, the entire mutant aspect. And I don't really want to get deep into, like, the, the summarization of what this movie, you know, what happens in this movie because it's got so many uh, just devastatingly beautiful twists and turns. And David Cronenberg's career is genuinely beautiful i mean you've got a race car movie that i think some people might not think is is that great but it's shot very very well and you know he's very well known as a, a horror body horror kind of guy but outside of that he has just a, a beautiful dramatic ability uh with with his sense of direction and his sense of pushing his actors and how he decides to frame and capture things and by this I, I'm referencing things like M Butterfly are That's honestly that that's not really a coincidence either because what did he make after Dead Ringers? He made M Butterfly, which with Jerry proves Irons, that Cronenberg yeah. is an excellent director of like opera, basically. And that's what his films are. They're like super dramatic operas that just don't have any singing. Well, I think this might be uh, the somewhat questionable statement I'm about to make here, but looking at the career of David Cronenberg and despite uh, Videodrome being one of my most beloved movies. I, I, I feel that movie. I understand that movie. I absolutely love it. I think something like M. Butterfly is, is one of his greatest pictures. And it, it's just how he captured... Uh, there's You can take a horror movie, or, or not just a horror movie, you can make a production or a movie or do anything and make it about whatever, but when you have to base it in reality and have certain rules of stretching the story or lying and fabricating it that you don't want to do and you have to handle it... Uh, like you just referenced in almost an operatic manner there just there's nobody that can do it better and you have to look at like maps to the stars a dangerous method um even a history of violence just uh, some of the non cosmopolis uh cosmo yeah and that was um god I, again i can't remember the name of the guy that wrote that goddamn book um don delilu he wrote underworld he's a fantastic writer Cronenberg managed to do something that's very very rare with cosmo uh, cosmopolis and and just literally capture a, a 2,000 fucking, I mean, not a 2,000, it's, it's maybe about a 1,000 pages. It's a very dense book. Um, capture all of this and, and transform it into something that you could totally fit into a 90-minute format. And that's something with... In the back of a fucking limo, no less. Uh, then it goes to an apartment for five minutes and uh, a basketball court. So there's, 
nothing. Three and, sets. Yeah, and most of them, uh, even like everything in the limo, was mostly CGI'd. That Cronenberg has just gotten incredibly comfortable doing something I, I talk about a lot, filming in one place. I love, I love things that are just one location, maybe two locations, just a very tight room. I love claustrophobia. Dead Ringers has a great... Um, you know, they go to it, it, it. The story starts when they're very young, and it you know transgresses to college, and then to the pinnacle of their career, and then the fall of their career, and all of these surrounding areas. But at the same time, it manages to be very, very claustrophobic. Something that even Videodrome has. I mean, pretty much everything that David Cronenberg can offer you will have this this very similar feeling, and that's uh, you know very stylistic of him, and and partially why I love him so much is the intensity that he puts behind his characters. And returning to Jeremy Irons, he's playing twin brothers, but both of them are vastly different characters. And despite vastly how... different performances too, that's yeah. the amazing thing. Without even talking, Jeremy Irons, I know what twin he is playing at all times, just in his like body language, just in the way he uses his face. And that's it's something very... that you have to to notice throughout the movie, though, is that most you can't, you're not supposed to be able to tell who's Beverly or who's L. You, you're not supposed to be able to figure out which twin is which, and you can, I mean, you can every yeah. time. <laughs> it's it's so weird. What's also very strange about this film is Cronenberg. I, he can be alienating as a filmmaker just because um, it's very. I, I know a lot of people use this term when uh, talking about Cronenberg. They always say very clinical, and he is very almost like science based with his direction. Um, but he in this film especially, it's both alienating. And it also draws you in with all the uh, immense amount of like melodrama that's going on throughout the entire piece. But it honestly, it feels like you're almost like an observer of this, watching it from the side, like you're one of the mantle secretaries and you're just watching the decline of uh, these two brothers. Well, who... you feel incredibly bad for them, but what you're presented with even at the beginning of the movie is clear evidence that you should not, that they are both manipulative men that have made it into their, their 30s or, you know, I guess they're in their mid-30s or so, and they are predatory. They are, at the beginning of the movie, before even they both begin to slip into uh, drug addiction and just fanatical, psychotic episodes, they are posing as each other and luring in patients and, and women and taking advantage of them by posing as each other and not allowing them to know who they're having sex with. So essentially both brothers are having sex with women. They're raping them. One of them is committing rape while the other one sets it up. So they're they're dubious characters. And the way Cronenberg handles that is is not delicately. It's not nice. He presents who they are as children and then wham bam. This is what's going on. And it's I, I, throughout the transition of the movie, you start feeling incredibly bad for one of the Mantle twins. And his plight and his romance with another character begin to take the, the overwhelming heart of the story. And you start feeling bad for them. And I think it's something that you really have to take into consideration is still they're, they're essentially rapists. They're, they're gynecologist rapists. And that's first and foremost who your character is. And that's, again, sort of a common theme with Cronenberg is most of the time his lead characters aren't necessarily the greatest people in the world. Like Max Ren in Videodrome is kind of a sleaze. He's not kind of a sleaze. He is a sleaze. It's James Woods. He's a fucking sleaze. That's why James Woods got the job. He was perfect for it. He was made for that role. There was was nobody in the planet that could have done that better, and that's why it's fantastic. He's almost like a fucking lizard in that film and a lot of other films. He just has a very cold-blooded, like, 
feel about him. He does not feel personable at all. My mom even does this to me. She won't watch Videodrome because she hates James Woods, and I get this connotation that I must love the guy because he's in Videodrome. Uh, Cronenberg didn't even like him. He was perfect for the role. There was nobody that could lick their own eye like a lizard, like James Woods. You know, he's just perfect under a, a sun lamp and a heat rock. He's a he's a greasy. Uh, I don't mean this, you know, like an insult toward him. He plays a greasy, manipulative character like uh, Casino. There was nobody better to play that character. It's just what he's immaculate at doing. And, you know, I'm not trying to insult the man because of his political beliefs or anything. It's just he plays a really greasy son of a bitch really well. And let's play a little a little brain game here, a little thought experiment. Um, whereas I'm very much behind the um, woman with the multiple multiple uteruses and the gynecological tools for operating on such women. That seems to be the takeaway that most people have from this movie. Would it have been better served, possibly, with leaving that element out and just leaving it to the the actual melodrama between these two characters? Again, I love that aspect of the film because it's Cronenberg and it's fucking weird and it adds a certain patina to everything. But in general, do you think it would have been a more successful film and taken more seriously if you had left all that weird kind of science fiction shit out of it? I feel possibly it could have been cut down a little bit more. There's a dream sequence where Beverly dreams that he is attached to his brother and he wakes up in bed and is very frightened and upset. And he, you know, that's again a statement where they show his downfall and his, um, you know, massive consumption of narcotics and where he starts to begin addicted to things, which. I think some people might blame the his companion, and that's not the angle. It's his weakness and his not knowledge. It's of his the world. brother that drove him to him more than anything. Well, yeah, he she didn't know how to uh, do things outside something to of, ignite the fire. Well, he didn't know how to do things outside of Ellie, so he had to, you know, rely on almost like Bambi-like child uh, instincts, which both of them truly never really grew up. They're 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 very childlike. But I think focusing maybe on that dream aspect and them being more connected and giving a more uh, on-screen appearance to their ha- – like, you know, you, you get at one point in the movie where Ellie begins to take all the drugs that Beverly's taking so because it's in their system so they can be synchronized together. I wish that we'll had level been – level it out together. Yeah, I wish that had been shown in the more body horror, I guess is the term, Cronenbergian aspect of them connected and more dreamlike sequences. And then you could have done something like him when he goes to get the – when Beverly goes to get the tools designed – you could have included that sequence of him showing the schematics of the tools and what he needed and the artist agreeing to come up with something. And, you know, that whole surgical scene is one of my favorites, but it didn't even have to be those tools. He could have completely done those tasks. with uh, That might have been even more horrifying. You later have him using the solid gold one. The surgery scene could have been combined with that, but that's one of the most, uh, again, bringing up something like a Christ-like scene. You've got him getting ready for this surgery, just completely doped out of his mind. And uh, the Soskas recently borrowed this imagery for their rabid remake or rabid reimagining. And it's just this stark red surgery gowns, which are just so off-putting and remind you almost of, of you know, plague doctors. And it, the imagery and the beauty behind it, again, to use the terms uh, we'd referenced earlier, it's just operatic. Yeah, and that's what Cronenberg <clears throat> is most successful at in his films. He has a sense of braining a certain amount of drama. Well, I, I totally got off to point, but situation. I am agreeing with you. I'm sorry. I totally agree. I mean, agree. it's not that I want it gone particularly because I love those elements. And it could have been really toned down. Makes it, 
it stand out from a lot of other films, like being just a kind of a, a normal everyday run the mill drama. But I just on a personal level, I think it kind of probably pushed a lot of people away because you already have Cronenberg making this film. You already have characters, who, characters who you can't particularly like relate with. And then you throw this on top of it, it just makes everything kind of run cold throughout the film. But again, for me, that's perfect. And that's what makes the film the film. And that's why I love the film is of kind of how it makes you feel. Um, and it's not that melodrama that like gives you tear jerking moments for me personally. It's just more of like yeah, I disagree. I, I can't well, watch. Well, this to me, it crying. feels like I'm an alien at a human zoo. That's what it feels like the entire time watching this film. It just it feels so very Vonnegut style distancing. I I feel broken watching it, and I just I I it's not that I, I I guess I feel I understand the want, and you know there's there's certain scenes throughout the movie that just really break me, and and one of which I referenced a little while ago when Beverly wakes up from this awful nightmare of being connected to his brother like Chang and Ang, and she bites you know through their connection, and he 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 wakes up screaming, her immediate reaction just the absolute love. That, that she has for him just to, to, to and I keep just referencing she it's um Genevieve Gabriel our our grasp of any language outside of English names is pretty shit so I mean like David Sorry, we're white trash well it's a mat you know we can get David Cronenberg we can get some tricky ones Joe Diamato you can throw a comma and we'll get it but it's a bit Genevieve Bourgeois so I just I, I can't stand just referring to her as her sorry I had to, to dig up the name here when Genevieve wakes up, she's just so upset. That's her immediate thing to try and comfort Beverly, to try and make him happy, and he rejects it. You know, his immediate reaction is, I, I don't want to dream, I need to take drugs. And we go through this theme of his connection with his brother and both of their, I guess, imbalance being away from, from one another and trading people off that they can't accept anything but each other's love. There's nothing, drugs, alcohol, sex, nothing will fill it except each other. And you obviously get some references of, you know, incest between the two that they're, they're truly connected. And, you know, um, Ellie has a girlfriend who kind of melds between the two. And you've got that introduced sort of into the third act of the movie is this character, the sympathetic character who is attempting to outwardly look into everyone. And I guess for me, and you know, my whole point is, is, understanding the, the loneliness how heartbroken everyone just seems i just feel an overwhelming amount of sadness that comes from that so to me it makes it one of those movies where you just you, you can't help but kind of feel overwhelmed and want to tear up and cry because it's just truly like a surrounding wall of sadness no one's happy the receptionist isn't happy no one's girlfriend's happy no one is anyone that encounters the mantle twins are just left completely unhappy but it's not even their fault it, it could it just... also be that these people are unhappy and most of the people that are discussed in the film are upper crust rich people who just cannot find any sort of comfort in each other. Well, the Ellie only and Bev that make that joke. found as twins is in themselves. They've never found it in a woman or uh, like a, a relationship outside of their twin relationship. Well, that's even referenced when... Claire Nouveau is introduced uh, that Ellie says, you know, the Claire Nouveau, the actress. And well, what is she just incomplete because she can't have a child? And Beverly says, how do you know? Well, it's the National Enquirer. That's that's all the reasons celebrities are upset. 
So, uh, you know, uh, it's everything that David Cronenberg has done hasn't necessarily been a wink or a nod, but I think a very abrupt satire toward something, again, like referencing RoboCop, something in the similar vein. That it, if it's not politically charged, it's using his own terms, having your antenna up and what he's encountering and what he's taking out of absolute necessary things that need to be shown to you. And you can take it whichever way you want to, but like especially like Cosmopolis has an overwhelming message. Uh, everything, Videodrome, Scanners, Rabid, all of them have the exact same overwhelming message. And at, at first it was, you have to keep your antenna up. You have to see what the new flesh is. You you have to see what's going on. And now it's get it down a little bit. People's antennas are too high. All you're doing is sitting on your phone. You're 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 not real. You're just digital. Get back to to reality. Anti Matrix. The Anti Matrix. Well, there's going to be no argument for me on this one because it is a five star movie. It is a masterpiece. It's one of Cronenberg's best films. Uh, it's most like precisely made out of all of his films uh, with a lot of like, like I said, precision. It's um, it's tight. It doesn't seem to well, it doesn't seem to go off the rails into some places that it doesn't need to go for the most part. Um, he's telling the exact story that he wants to tell, because I mean, like Videodrome was an unfinished script when he started shooting. So it I don't mind any of the places it goes, but it goes just a whole bunch of different places. And Dead Ringers doesn't go anywhere that it doesn't need to go. It's just, it's very matter-of-fact. It's probably his most matter-of-fact film he's ever made. But, like, I think that's the one, and this is just my own personal opinion, I think this is the film that David Cronenberg is probably the most proud of. Maybe, I'm not sure. I think he's very proud of some of his more recent work, and I would debate this being the most matter-of-fact. I think A Dangerous Method is probably his most... Um, matter-of-fact cognitive work, uh, but, at, like, you know, saying favorite things, Videodrome definitely takes the, the top of the charts. This, I mean, because Dead Ringers is not my favorite David Cronenberg film, and I don't think it's his best film either. I, I weirdly, I, I think M. Butterfly is, is really what sticks out, is, and I think because it shows his absolute ability to handle anything. I mean, that movie is not a horror movie whatsoever, in, in no facet. So it's just very unique seeing somebody that's known for head exploding and very odd sexuality uh, present on screen to tackle something. And he tackled it so eloquently. And the story that's told in M. Butterfly is a, a very hard story to tell. As is Dead Ringers, but he yeah. I mean, was able uh, gynecologists to are the lead character. When have you? When I can't. You reference... immediately turned off most of your audience just by making them gynecological doctors. I mean, I can't reference any other film that has gynecologists as the lead character, and that's even you know kind of played upon in the movie where Ellie is playing Beverly, and he's at dinner with Claire and her agents with him, and you know they begin talking about her uterus and the examination, and he abruptly leaves when they reference. Her being, or how her periods are, so I guess there can be a level of discomfort from a, a more masculine identity when watching this movie, and I think that's one of the really genius things about David Cronenberg is he tackles very unique and what's considered masculine subject, masculine subjects, and and completely shows you the the, the young or fruit version of really the reality behind those things, which is what a dangerous method is about. Carl Jung and uh, Sigmund Freud. Okay, have we got anything left to say about Dead Ringers? It's a good movie. Check it out.
<laughs> the most worthless fucking <laughs> critique I've ever heard in my life. It's a it's good one. You just watch it. You All like right. It. We'll go next on my list. Um, uh, some people might disagree with me. I don't think Hank does at all, but uh, I'm going for 1981 and I'm going for George A. Romero's Night Riders because it's an amazing piece of artwork that has not been given almost any recognition over the years. Uh, it's one of his best films, if not his best film. And I will interrupt the fact... you to say that I strongly feel this is the greatest film of George Romero. Well, despite the fact that you know, it's about a renaissance fair and motorcycles. It has almost nothing to do with those things whatsoever. It's all about interpersonal relationships. It's about moving on with your life. It's about not being like hard headed and listening. It's about to other chasing people. the dragon. It's about chasing the dragon. Um, it's, and it's probably, I'd say his most personal film because the Ed Harris character in the movie, Billy is pretty much an avatar for George Romero. And you can look at the whole thing as him realizing that after this movie, I'm making this Night Riders movie. I am not going, I'm going to have to go studio. I'm going to have, I can't be making these small movies with my friends. Like I've been doing for the last 10 to 15 years. The family's going to break up. And I, yeah, like the family is going to break up. I am, I'm fight. I want to fight it, but there is no fighting it. And change is coming. And if I can't stand with change, then I need to run into a truck and kill myself, apparently. But um, and the, the plot is pretty general of a renaissance fair that uses motorcycles to, to interject with. real quick. When this movie was made, renaissance fairs weren't a, a giant thing. You know, Dungeons and Dragons and LARPing wasn't a giant thing. So when Ramiro and company decided to, to tackle this subject matter, it was really rock and roll. And there's a great commentary uh, for this movie that's mostly George and um, Tom Savini talking. But they just rehash. Just, just the, you feel like you could actually be there, and you get a true idea of what a family these guys were. And they were all true independent filmmakers that stuck together. And you, you watch this movie, and you've seen George's other films. You just get excited seeing the familiar faces and all these people you've grown to love over the years that don't appear anywhere else outside of George's work. And if it wasn't for George, and to me, it's one of the most catapulting, beautiful things to see all of these people together. I mean, it took like 90 days to shoot this. It was a very, it was an entire summer and John Amplis, Tom Savini, uh, Ramiro, everyone involved highly spoke of this as the best summer of their lives, you know, and, and you reference this as being your favorite George movie. It's my favorite George movie. It was his too. It it really was something that he was proud of, and to me, uh, just and I guess this is a very selfish review, but to me, as a piece of art, is seeing an artist, which most are always very against their own work, cherish and love something, makes me love it so much more. And knowing that this was George's favorite and how personal it was to him, uh, it just catapults it to me as one of just the the best genre movies. And like I don't even know if you can describe it as a genre film because yeah, that's really, poor taste. I mean, it's it's mostly just a drama about how like in a like in a group how people get along and don't get along, and really who has a say in what the the like the the future of this group is. And the masterstroke of this film is again George's editing. There are thousands of shots. He makes it so full 
um, with characters, um, with different viewpoints uh, through the lens, through just even the amount of very, shots he uses. Well, he even tackles just, very early subject matter, like homosexuality and people being judged for being homosexual. And just there's an amazing amount of very topical things that were way before their time that it was just normal to George. Just things that he thought people should be aware of and talked about because the entire process of this movie is uh, seeing yourself and in, 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 uh, you can you can be any avatar, I guess, in this movie. But seeing yourself as a member of the community and it's a bigger standpoint for you know the community you're in, in real life and how people interact with each other. And as you were just leading into uh, people's disagreements, people's lives, different philosophies working together, just truly what society is and a lot of Ramiro's politics that we've discussed previously all come into play here with obviously what he feels was justice and what, you know, life is all about. So what I guess I'm saying is the movie is about socialism. Because <laughs> it kind of is a little bit. But yeah. just on a filmic level, just with the amount of shots he gets, the amount of little pieces you get from this Ren Fair, it expands the universe that he's saying this so much. You get so like much coverage with, so many of the characters and each individual person has their own character. They might be on screen for a entirety of five minutes, but that character is valuable to this group. It's valuable because you've given them something to do. It focuses on so many different people, but when it focuses specifically on Ed Harris, you still have a through line to the story of this man who's trying to hold on to his dreams and realizing that even though I can't have exactly what I want, I've been able to bring these people together in a community and my time and my part of this is now over and it's time for this community to find its own way and branch out even further. The ways that I'm not personally comfortable with it branching out with, but I also know that it's my time to leave. If that is the case, it's not a dictatorship. This is about family. It's about community and it's, it's really about human emotions and what people go through. Cause almost everybody there's just, so, it's so rich with characters that everybody goes through their own personal dramas and you can relate to almost every single one of them in one way or another. And it's just, it's just so rich with different people and what their lives are. And that's kind of what's most amazing about it. And Ed Harris gives a fucking hell of a performance. It's one of my favorite Ed Harris performances of all time. This was um, his uh, second performance, his second on-screen performance, and I believe it came out before his first one. So, you know, this is uh, essentially the debut of Ed Harris, who you do get to see. amazing. Almost get to see his balls at the beginning of the movie, if that's something <laughs> for you. And for a lot of people who are not getting with this movie because of the premise, because it is essentially about a Renaissance festival. It's like, it. that's so not what the movie is about and just watch it on a human level. And it may not have a lot of flashy bells and whistles to say, like something we talked about earlier, Jonathan Glazer, who um, like really knows how to use a camera, really knows how to use editing, you know, technology and really like color timing his images perfectly. This is shot on the run with 16, pretty sure 16 millimeter might have been 35 millimeter and just for the amount of shit that he got in the can and it ends up on screen is fucking amazing um what is it a two-hour movie it's just two hours right and 45 hours? minutes it's two hours and what 45 minutes i it can't be that long i don't know if that's right well, i don't I'm, know if I'm, you're right about that egg um, all right insert the jeopardy theme because we're gonna have to look it up <laughs> i think it's like two hours and ten minutes 
2 hours 26 minutes. That okay, 2 hours 26 minutes. Yeah, I that, thought it was 46. Okay. We, we'll split the difference on that one. Yeah, so not, um, both of us and, were entirely wrong. And the time blows right by because you are so interested in these characters and what is going to happen to these people. Are they well, going so much to happens. eventually? I mean, it goes from them having tear this... apart, or were they? Are they going to band back together? What is truly what they are about, which is community and family. Well, it goes from this like very hippy dippy, you know, commune sort of thing to almost a, a rock and roll aspect with Savini's characters and the branching off. And you were bringing up the characters; a lot of them are familiar faces. You know, you got Scotty Reininger, who hardly has any lines of dialogue, but he appears throughout most of the movie and. It, his character is developed. You understand who he is and his allegiance with Tom Savini. Of course, you, you might know him better as Roger from Day of the Dead. Ken Foray appears in this film. Again, hardly any... Well, he's got a little bit more action. He's part of Ed Harris's community. John Amplis from Martin. Um, yeah, Patricia Tallman for, uh, from the Not a Living Dead remake. Just everyone that you could recognize. Joe Pilato for a sequence. Salazar. I can't, I'm sorry. That's not his real name, but... Salazar. <laughs> Uh, I'm running out of real names here, but well, everyone that you were familiar with. One of the people you um, mentioned, I just wanted to bring up real quick, um, John Amplis, who just plays a mime in this film, um, who I do not believe he did not have any mime training because, yeah, I mean, he, he's doing a great mime. But in this film, I Martin, heard he could mildly juggle a little bit beforehand. But like what is amazing about John Amplis as an actor in those two films, specifically Martin and Knight Riders, is he has almost zero dialogue in both films, and yet his character is one of the most emotional characters in both films, just on body language, just on facial expressions, not even uttering anything, and just really getting you to pull into his character, just using his his instrument, his body. And that's just an amazing feat of acting. I just wanted to randomly bring that up. I really enjoy Savini's performance in this movie. One of my favorite scenes he's is... He's playing himself, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, he, he's, it's not just a, a, a one-and-done performance. He's really giving you something out of this. And there's a scene where he's sitting on his bike, and him and Ed Harris are talking about something, and another character effeminately reaches out and just touches his face. And he turns and looks at them, almost like you know he's going to knock them down. And It's just such a unique characterization of truly what all of these guys were and how they, they really felt, even down to, you know, Ed Harris is performing pretty much as George Romero. So he's really the only one acting here. I mean, even to, uh, like, Bill Heinzman shows up in a movie, to an extent, everyone was really family. Everyone that worked on this production was a part of Night of the Living Dead, part of the Crazies, part of Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, later in the future. All of these guys... Creep show. Creepshow, they they knew their era was ending, and this was really the swan song for that, that all of them together knew, you know, uh, what they perceived was George was going to make it big, and, you know, working with Stephen King and Creepshow and the deal, the three-picture deal that they had gotten out of this, I believe what it was, Knight Riders, Creepshow, and Day of the Dead was the three-picture deal that ended up, you know, what we have now. It was perceived that George was going to, you know, shoot to superstardom and that the family was breaking up. But unfortunately, it didn't work that way. And the family still broke up. And what you have in return is is this motion picture and all of their emotions, all of their feelings. It's very obvious. It was just love, just absolute love. And what's kind of crazy is the, the fucking balls on George Romero to make this film because, hey, um, you just came out with probably the most wild, like wildly successful horror film of all time that people are calling critics and fans alike are calling a masterpiece. What do you want to do next? Uh, I want to do a thing about Ren Fairs. 
That's that's his next. He could have done anything, and this is what he picks. And I'm perfectly okay with that because he got to do something that he didn't commonly get to do, which was make a story that's personable to him and is not just like a series of horror tropes that he can masterfully manipulate. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, Night Riders is truly the voice of George Romero. This is what the man was all about. I mean, this is a very almost autobiographical film, and for. In general, the ending of the film is depressing as sad as it is because it is an incredibly sad ending to the film. It always makes me tear up when uh, Donald Rubenstein sings the I'd Rather Be a Wanderer song. Um, it's a, ultimately a story about hope and the human condition that even when you can't go on fighting anymore, the people that you've touched are going to continue to go on fighting for the things that you know are right and they know that are right. And that's like the most powerful message in a lot of, I mean, this is his most positive film, I'd say overall as well. I mean, as far as down endings go, because he was a Jack's life isn't bad. And now, I mean, still though, she has that look at the end of um, season of the witch where she's now the witch at the party and she just kind of looks down and you can tell that her new life as her old life as boring as that was her new life is almost just as boring now. And all the crazy shit that's happened in between. So it's I wouldn't call that an up ending. I wouldn't call Martin an up ending. This is about the only up ending Romero did Martin over the years. Martin has the most negative ending, I think, out of, out of all of them. I don't think there's any positivity with Martin. I don't think there's any hope at the end of the day. There, I feel, is certainly hope. And it's the idea that it's not just you. It's the idea that there can be a growth of community, a growth of love, a growth of support. And that I think is what truly is shown throughout the entire movie that because even characters that are perceived as bad guys like Tom Savini eventually come around and there's a full circle of, of their development and how they all actually passionately care for the greater good of each other, which is something incredibly lacking from our society. And, you know, I mean, as soon as Morgan steps away, him and his group, what happens? fucking capitalism and greed just creep in on the group and they all just fucking melt down on each other and they all like it's a it's a fucking cancer that kind of shit is just a cancer to, to people and community and that's all that happens i mean eventually they they grow back together but the cancer had affected enough that it's taken tomorrow away it's not going to be the same things have to change because of the choices that you've made so actions and reactions and Pretty much all the common themes that appear throughout the rest of Ramiro's career, or even the early part of his career, or the entirety of his career, rather. It's just kind of definitively who he was. This is Ramiro's finest picture, I think his masterpiece. The One of the least seen. I mean, I, I, Jack's Wife, Season of the Witch, there's always Vanilla. Most of those aren't often talked about or appreciated. I think if it's not a zombie movie, it's creep show. And I, I just don't want to tell a whole world of people they're wrong, but you're wrong. It, <laughs> it's not Creep Show. It's not Dawn of the Dead. It's not Day of the Dead. But that's up there for me. I mean, we'll, we'll all try and go in order. Knight Riders, Martin, probably Day. Day of the Dead will probably be my third favorite Romero movie. But again, it's because of the social commentary that's laid out in that movie. I I always cheat on this one because I always say, I don't know, Martin and Knight Riders are kind of tied for number one. And then the Dead Trilogy is number two. So we'll just put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly feel I like Day much more than Dawn, but Dawn is so much more historically important. Yeah, I mean, his top five movies, or his top two movies to me are, are, are five movies. So, I mean, that, if that tells you anything about my love for George Romero films. Um, 
but it's just an amazing film that a lot of people need to check out. A lot of people are not going to be that interested in it because it is not flashy by any sense of the word. It is not something that you're you're not going to get massive scenes of violence or anything that's completely over the top. This is a character human based story about your own place in your community and what you're trying to do. And even when you sell out, you need to sell it in your own way, which is kind of ultimately what they all do at the end is what we're going to, I mean, we'll have to sell out if we want to keep this together, but it's going to be on our terms. They don't and so it's much just, sell out it's a good as they message. buy in. They don't so much sell out as they buy in. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, it's a five-star masterpiece. Agreed. That's, that's all I got to say about Knight Riders. Five stars out of me. So is that the end with Knight Riders? Are we, have we reached the final with Knight Riders? I'm done with Knight Riders. It's certainly one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite Romero movies. I mean, we can dedicate an entire show to this later and talk about how it was made and all sorts of fun facts and the uh, laying political messages with it, but I guess it's my turn. This is my final one. We're, we're getting toward the end here. So now we're on my final movie. All right, down to the, the slim pickings. From 1964, The Last Man on Earth by Ubaldo Ragona. It doesn't really matter who this is by. It was initially shopped as a Hammer movie, and they didn't want to do something that bleak, and it became an Italian-American co-production. I believe it was shot in Italy. This is the very first translation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, one of my favorite books. Darn Vinny P! And the the P stands for pussy. He was addicted to it. Vincent Price. It was also known as Vincent Poon in certain circles. It is the first... In the 70s. Yeah, throughout the entire 70s, Vincent Poon. This is the very first translation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, and it has no comparison to the Will Smith film. Unfortunate that they decided to use the actual title for it. This is the closest translation. Uh, In fact, a lot of dialogue from the actual novel was used for this, and what we're dealing with is a scientist named Robert Morgan is one of the last people alive, or the last man on Earth, after a epidemic has come forth. And the way the film is presented, unlike the novel, is something that Romero even kind of bit and used for Night of the Living Dead, and its influence beyond there, I think, is very, very apparent throughout horror. Using Vincent Price as the lead character uh, sort of detracts from how normal this was supposed to be, that the, the novel presents a very normal man a factory worker who is left being the last man on earth. And with this presentation, you've got a scientist who is now surviving and trying to figure out how to save humanity. So when you're dealing with the entire, uh, what happens at the end of the story and why he is legend and what he's trying to do at the beginning, you're almost establishing that it's heroic, but it's heroic for all the wrong reasons. Uh, You know, looking at something like Knight Riders, it's not so much for the better of the community, but He's presented as a a very selfish character, and that is a hard right turn from what I think is presented in Richard Matheson's original story. Well, I mean, really what the story ends up going to, like towards the end, um, is what makes it so kind of incredible because you can throw it on modern culture to a certain extent and say something along the lines of, um, I've been thinking this entire time that I've been fighting for truth justice in the american way and at the end of the day it turns out i'm just a fucking nazi because goddamn murderer 
that's pretty much what Robert Morgan figures out at the end of this story is, oh, the the old guard is out and the new guard is in and I'm a fucking monster and I am a legend. I will be what they tell their children when they put them to sleep at night. I'm, I'm the fucking boogeyman now. I am what I've always thought they were. And it's truly I, apologetic. Oh, yeah. Um, and for me, what's strange about this is I believe I saw this movie before I read the book. So when I read the book, I could not not put Vincent Price in the Robert Morgan character. Like I, I'm sitting here ringing and I'm just imagining it really transcends though, Vincent and Price the same time. A lot of the actions and how Richard Matheson handled the character, and despite him just being an everyman, there's even certain scenes where like he, he's not scenes, but parts of the book where he's trying not to drink. And he goes out of his way to drink tomato juice, and you can't help but even hear it in the inner narration in Vincent Price's head of, of moaning and groaning about drinking too much. And a lot of the challenges of the novel involved the characters change from I drink too much and he can't sleep and very normal things that he's trying to deal with while this is outbreaking is to where the movie is a bit more action-paced and it has a lot of leering tension and more horror aspects to it, which of course is trying to sell the product, but by doing so it kind of misses a bit of the human standpoint that I think Matheson was showing with the novel of, of how normal uh, the, the, the character, his name was Neville in the, the novel, but how normal he was and how uh, any this could happen to anyone. And the whole point, I think, is a little bit missed, but at the same time, you have such a horrifying aspect and you you know it's it's zombies vampire warlock kind of characters they're they're creepy of course it changes throughout every translation of this i really like the the charlton heston um omega man monsters where'd they get them cloaks not only that um how yeah, they did, all dress uh, like I the am Smiths. Legend, they turn into fucking bubble gum because that is some poor ass cgi one of the worst things is if you manage to find this colorized, uh, there's a, a colorized restored version, and what I find hysterical is all the zombie vampire characters, they just left in black and white. And the effect of this movie truly is experienced in black and white, and it's why it was you know shot in that format. Well, I mean, apart from other concerns, I mean, it was shot in that format. Well, that was the that... typical, I mean, for a low-budget but... film. Yeah, they knew how to shoot black and white at that time. They knew about contrast and using shadows to your benefit as opposed to just blasting everything with as much light as fucking possible and letting the colors do the work. Um, but I think it's a fairly expertly handled film for probably the amount of money they were given. Um, I think Vincent Price was a stroke of genius for me personally, but I'm just a Vincent Price fan. Because well, it really allows me to get Price. into that character and experience this with that character. If it was a little too everyman for me, I don't know how interested I would be. I, I think it would come off schlocky if you'd thrown just some random character in there. Even like a Lon Chaney Jr. would just be super schlocky. I think Price could have handled it as any. Like if he was an everyman character, it wouldn't have mattered. But what one of the few things, or one of the one things that really stands out is Price's performance. And it's not an over-the-top, and as you just said, schlocky horror performance. You have a, a great range of emotion, like how I referenced Ray Winstone with Sexy Beast. You see him actually act. And I'm not saying that Vincent Price always didn't do his best, but a lot of the time he was just Vincent Price, and that's what he was brought on set to be. In this instance, you truly have him developing the character, and he is Robert. He he is what he is showing you on screen, 
and there are just so many points of annoyance where you don't agree with him and you don't agree with what he's doing and that's just the development and you know Vincent Price taking this character so it's a really unique look into his true talents as an actor because this piece is obviously horror and to an extent a bit uh, exploitation but at the same time it has a very dramatic soul behind it, which I think is really promising. And Richard Matheson in general is just a wonderful writer. So when you have that intellectual property and that original material that you can kind of go wild with, you know, the sky's the limit. And the fact that it was an Italian production really shows on the film, because at this point in history, Italians, I mean, you had uh, Mario Bava around this time doing Black Sabbath and doing, um, oh, Jesus, uh, What's the other one that I can't remember right? Black Sunday. Jesus, that took me a minute. Um, the two blacks. But just the way that they use contrast and shadow, especially at this time period, you see that in this film. And if it was made in America, I think a lot of the um, eerier elements of the photography would be completely absent. And you wouldn't have kind of the strong... Um, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's as far as like German expressionism filming. Not, not, not like that at all. But like just... More along those lines, though, and not so 1950s Hollywood musical where they did just kind of gray out the image a lot of the time and didn't particularly care about the format of film they were working on. And there's a certain painterly aspect of this film that really makes it a classic. Um, It's way better than um, a lot of the other Vincent Price movies that he's most known for, like House on Haunted Hill, uh, The Fly, and some of those other things. the Abonalo Dr. Fibes, which will be on a show like this at some point, I'm sure, because that is by far a fucking amazing classic. Um, but Fibes, I'd say, is one of the finest Dr. Price films, or Dr. Price films. Dr. Price. <laughs> Dr. Fibes is one of the finest Vincent Price films, rather. Yes, by far. And, and, like, and his performance in this, for like you can compare his performances in something like this, and Theater of Blood, and Dr. Fibes, and see how multiversatile he was as a performer because he can be an everyman he can be incredibly dramatic as he is in the last man on earth and you really do feel his pain and his uh his loneliness and like his solitude and going completely arch and over the top in something like dr fives or um theater of blood where it's just almost like a, a super campy performance which is what he came more known for in the 70s and 80s but you can see as Price was an actor back then, and he really does add something to the overall effect of the film. And the way they chose to shoot the vampires in the film and make them, quote-unquote, like Nightwing dead zombies before that existed, and George Romero pulling from it. Um, that's a really creepy thing, because I didn't expect to be creeped out by this film when I first saw it a long-ass time ago, 30, 35 years ago. Um, but Especially like the when zombie, they speak and bang on the windows and they're yelling his name. It's fucking terrifying. The Morgan. Like, the craziness of you being locked in your house. And that's a thing that was missing from, say, the Will Smith version of I Am Legend is, no, they're, they're cognizant. They talk. They stay outside of his, um, his house and taunt him from the outside. And it just it's driving him crazy. That's why every day I go out and try to clean up vampires and kill them he and every contemplates... sit here and get tortured and taunted well they're so human in the novel he even contemplates raping one of them just he can't get over being horny i mean there's a lot of just 
loneliness and, and, you know, things that are happening right now in the world, being quarantined and forced to be alone that he's experiencing and something that isn't necessarily relevant in the Vincent Price version, but it's obviously shown his course of emotion to the, to even where he tries to stop drinking as much as he's been doing because he's absolutely alone. He doesn't know what else to do. But, I mean, it's a heavy concept where he talks about how they are just pale, but they have normal, luscious bodies, and he becomes attracted to even some of the ghouls, as they word it in the novel, as, as Matheson words it in the novel, that are coming to his door. So every spectrum of emotion is, is really present, I think, with Vincent Price. But, of course, you have to exclude a lot of the sexuality. And it, it's just something relevant, I feel, to bring up, is, is how much of the translation from Matheson's novel to the film came forward. And apparently Matheson really disliked this. He wasn't happy with it at all, and uh, you know maybe he, I don't know if he lived long enough to see I Am Legend, the the Will Smith version. The, he was alive when it came out. Um, stark uh, I don't contrast. Know if he, liked it. he only died like maybe ten years ago. It hadn't even been that long. Um, a stark contrast if you compare all the different versions of this story um, with Omega Man and cast Charlton Heston in it, and it becomes this kind of dopey ass action movie where. Uh, hey, I'm the last man, but whatever, I can still find some ass. And it just, and Will Smith just being this almost like incel type character who's just all about sorrow and like you don't get the crazy nature of what, especially like Vincent Price, uh, like is dealing with in this film of all the mental torture that he's going through. He's not just a lone man out for action scenes. No, this is really weighing on him. This whole experience is it's like tearing it apart as a man, but his only like thing that's getting him through is because he like he's the last man. It's part vengeance and also part like preservatory of the human race as he sees it anyway. And turns out at the end, uh, no, you're wrong. It's 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 gone. It's over. It's way the fuck over. It's just the struggle and survival of the human race, and the, the presentation that Matheson gave you is, I think, very well translated with what you have uh, with The Last Man on Earth. And I, I love uh, Omega Man. It might appear later on this list just because it's a wonderful, strange movie. It's a different movie, uh, yeah. most definitely. I mean, I as far as like compared to the book, uh, I don't think there's any comparison whatsoever. It almost feels like a complete offshoot of it. I still like that movie for what it is. A reimagining, but... more or less. Yeah, and the Will Smith one, I'm not a huge fan of. I don't at hate all. It, it has some moments. It does have moments, but it just doesn't really hit the psychosis of what the novel and Last Man on Earth hit. Of what about just the uh, person crazy? The Mark DeCascos, I am Omega. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we, we have I've to seen like 45 up. minutes of it. I just couldn't get through it. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I'm aware of it. It, it, it's a piss poor fucking asylum film. So is this or is this a debatable movie or is this a greatest no. movie of all time? I I mean I, I think we're on the edge. This is like it's a little schlocky. When I mean schlocky is and like I think it's a bad film. It's just you, like as far as did they complete all their goals that they were setting out to do? Um, is this film like is it a five star movie? And it's like it's in that range of four and a half to five. But I would. I'm more on the side of it getting five than four and a half. It's just, you know, it's teetering on that edge a little bit because I can see how a lot of people would be turned off by this film. A lot of it does come to, I just really like it. So it's one of the best movies of all time because I say so. And if you haven't seen it, I don't know how you haven't because it's fucking public domain. It's goddamn everywhere. 
buy a copy for 50 cents. Or just search for it wherever you're streaming. I'm sure you can even find it on YouTube at this point. Fuck, we could even it do a commentary. It is on YouTube right now. Maybe we'll come back sometime and do a commentary for it. Find it, see it. It, it should be quintessential. You should have seen this by now if you're listening to Death by DVD. Most definitely. So, wow. Now we're on to the mystery title. <laughs> this is where we need to insert a drum roll, I guess? Um, This is where Hank questions my thought process. We might battle about this. We might not. I know a lot of people would battle me on this one. But one of the greatest films of all time, and it's from 1987, it is Jim Moreau's Street Trash. I don't... Why did I not include that? Why did I not... I don't know. Huh. It's don't, Street uh, Trash, everybody, because Street Trash is fucking amazing. Um, I guess here's where we'll, we'll... This is the exciting part, if I agree or disagree. I, I think it's one of the best movies of all time. All right. We we do not have disagreements on this. Roy Frumke uh, penned, who has been on this program before. He's been on Death by DVD. Uh, just... I uh, Gosh... Well, now I'm completely off kilter with uh <laughs> with picking street because I I would I've been so like well what the fuck is this asshole gonna pick it's not the Lost Boys it's not Predator I can't figure out what the fuck he's gonna pick and then you hit me with something that I I don't I, I we I well don't it's know not if commonly ever... gonna be on a lot of people's greatest movies of all time list because it well, is I don't know sweet. if we've ever even really talked about it that much on the show oh, I was on the Super Meltdown episode where we talked about melt movies and then we did um maybe two or three years ago uh, of like the most fucked up movies or what the fuck moment movies and I think this was on my list but I I really I love Street Trash I think everything about I mean. We'll get into everything. This is this is your time to to to, to take the floor. But I, I I don't know. I'm I'm stuttering now because I'm like fuck street trash man. That that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. And but one thing that I think is really unique about um this out of all the other Death by DVD episodes and different shows we do is like this was a complete surprise. But so far from the first episode to now, we both agree. Like yes, these are greatest of all time movies. If not, they're goddamn close. Yeah, and like you know, let's look if. if Let's just say we get to a million titles. Talk radio could be very high up. Um, and you know, even going back a lot, like just being honest, a lot of my love of talk radio is uh, Eric Bogosian and and his performance and his character. So a bit of that is selfish. Um, but whatever. Street Trash, though, man, it it's just I'm so excited that we get to talk about Street Trash now. I'm gonna shut the fuck up. For what it is which a lot of people would disagree that it is just a sleaze movie. No, 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 no. It's the world's most perfect sleaze movie. It is almost every single fucking genre. It is a horror film. It is a comedy. It is a romance at times. Hell, it's even got a sports element to it. There's a little, you know, football and crime. Don't film. leave out the mafia element. You've got everything. Mafia? A crime story. You have a Vietnam story. What else you got? How many? Oh, you have a melting bum story. You have a story about you've alcoholism. got the uh, asserting knowledge of how the homeless are living in New York City. You've got, I mean, and honestly, too, not all of this is just parody and us being assholes. There's a lot no, of different I'm, layers. Yeah, like, this is dead serious. It's it's about so many things. And Roy Frumpke, like he, his, or Frumpke's, his um his goal in this was to make the world's most sleazy film, and I think they pretty much accomplished it. Because well, even it's, it's like unique you connected this, this 
just to interrupt you briefly, it's it's unique you connected to this because Roy, you know, he did the Dawn of the Dead documentary and he was there. You know, he he showed up on set. He's kind of a Ramiro guy himself, um, as well as the guys that did um the Dead Next Door. That they all, you know, drove down and were involved as zombies in productions. Um, I, I don't know why I'm I'm forgetting the guy's name that did the Dead Next Door. Jared Brookwalter. There we go. Yeah, Brookwalter. Um, all of them are kind of like sub Ramiro people. So I think it's even more unique layers in the show that we discuss something like Night Riders, and then we have the addition of something like this because these guys weren't just out there trying to be the sleaziest. It was almost kind of like the Italians of how you know um. Mikel Suave worked with Argento and Fulci. All these different layers and all these names are connected to different people. And so, like, Frumkies came from kind of the Ramiro camp. So his thought process behind things, I think, had a lot of uh, unique oh, it's, outlook it's because of George. straight from an art school voice. This is not just, like, a, like a Herschel Gordon loose thing where we wanted to make yeah. money. This was, but I, I know, think he as had... a piece of art, I want to make something incredibly sleazy. I think as an artist, he had a lot of influence from, from guys like George, though, and you can see that with his work, and I think something like Street Trash is very reminiscent of a George Romero movie when it comes to its commentaries and a lot of the things that are included inside of it. Not necessarily its, its visuals or cosmetically, but what's inside of Street Trash is pretty provocative. I mean, uh, it's a, a complete understatement. Um, there's just so much going on in the film, and for what people most know it by, which is this like super gory melt film, it's so much more than that because there's so much going on, and a lot of people would lose the thread in this film. Like, well, what the hell is even going on? Are we focusing on the bums? Are we focusing? No, I mean we're focusing on all of this. We're focusing on basically 1987 dirtbag New York. This is a, a sign of the times. That, of what was going on. I mean, it's hyper realized here. It's not like this isn't just complete fact, but I mean, it's it's an exaggeration of what those times were. You might call me out on this, but I feel street trash is somewhat reminiscent of like an Abel Ferrara production of New York City. It's very no, I gritty. I wouldn't call you on it. I think that's a, it's fairly comparable because Abel Ferrara was also sort of like trying to really capture the grime of New York. And I mean, that's it what shows you. I mean, that's really what it's showing you. And it's not uh, this beautiful Manhattan. It's not what you consider New York now when you have this idea of it. So now it almost seems like its own strange universe that people were trying to make. But it's, it's not like Tromaville. This was shot in New York. This was shot in New Jersey. This was shot... Uh, like Larry Cohen style, you know, they went out and they shot what they could get and what they could do, and that is presenting to you the true atmosphere of what's going on. And it's just, it's not. And I, I use this term a lot. It's greasy, and I don't mean that in a bad way. But I mean, this movie's like soaked in Vaseline. You watch this and you feel, uh, just not dirty. Vaseline specifically lube. Yeah, it is and not like KY jelly. Sexual lube. Very cheap, nasty, you know, smelly lube. You know, it's got some like weird rose scent to it and it's that weird warming stuff. It's just awful. And that's not a the movie's not awful. I guess it can be perceived and taken that way. And on the last episode we were discussing something like Salo. I think this movie's in the same league with what it's trying to present as Salo, but I think it's so much more enjoyable. I would so I I could sit down and say to because somebody, "We're street trash." Bars. I mean, almost nothing in this film, and it does get it gets incredibly rapey at one point. But almost nothing of this is supposed to be taken seriously at all. It gets this a is, uh, well. Hold on, we got to go back because it gets a little rapey. But there is some some. 
full on necrophilia. I mean, that is. Oh yeah. There's but some again, very abhorrent the movie actions. Has everything. Yeah, it really does everything. I mean, it, it, it's hard pressed to find a movie that has this much bullshit going on with it, and able to actually master all these different little stories that are going on and make them all engaging in one way or another. And almost everybody in the production was like that. They were students. They were film students. And like they're, they're these weren't professional people, like on average anyway, like um, the director, even like he became a steady cam operator. He's never made another film in his life. He's shot some of the biggest budget movies in Hollywood as a steady cam operator, but he never directed again. And I don't know why, because he was, and he's honestly somewhat embarrassed by the film because I think he looks at it as what a twenty-year-old will do when they have like a like two hundred fifty thousand dollars to make the sleaziest movie of all time. I was like, God damn, give yourself a round of applause, dude! You made something brilliant and beautiful, and it, it's not so rough around the edges. Some of the acting can be a little iffy here and there, but like you don't see major mistakes in the film. Everything is pulled off fairly perfectly. All the special effects. The gore all the is, itself. I mean, you've got that Vic Noto, the Bronson death at the very end of the movie. I think one of the most infamous ones. That's just iconic. When when his head gets blown off. God, that's great. That's just fucking great. Uh, the, the, the tank beheading in the film. Um, but And even the, the James Lorenz stuff. The, uh, the, the doorman at the restaurant. All that weird subplot. It all works within the context of this movie. Well, that like makes everything the works in the context of this movie. And a lot of people would look at it as being somewhat amateurish and like a student film, but all the production aspects are pretty fucking on point. It looks just as good as almost any other movie of that time period, especially with such a low budget. And just to be able to put this magnificent piece of like trash cinema together is just somewhat fucking beautiful. I mean, at this point, people weren't really making quote-unquote cult films, and, and they pretty much set out to make the ultimate cult film. And I think they pretty much accomplished it. I mean, over the years, it goes in and out of popularity, but I, I think it, it's coming back with a resurgence, hopefully, because, I mean, it's the most non-PC thing you'll probably watch in a cinema at any point in your life, but that's kind of its positive. It's, it is to see how many barriers we can try to and how many different places we can go and um, and see if we can make that entertaining and exciting and they do every single time yeah it truly attacks your senses in all directions and I think one of the most pleasing things about street trash is it's I don't know it feels like a Larry Cohen movie on a crack it's got all of the quality all of the the bizarre political aspects and the layers that you had referenced earlier just the different amount of things that this movie attacks not just your senses but pretty much every topic that you could get into but it still manages to maintain almost a wholesome story and you feel the plight of these characters and you feel you know a, a little bit of happiness i guess when everything unfolds as it does at the end of the movie if you can strip and take away the absolute gory and bizarre nature of everything everything's there it's it's a well produced well written and pretty wholesome idea in general it, you just got to strip away some corpse fucking and melting bums and uh you know but if you strip craziness. any of that away it would be so imperfect well, I mean, and stripping it away it from you as a viewer, perfection. if you can just look at the story and see what's going on and not just take it for some, you know, muck-up horror story. And I think that's what most people end up taking something as street trash as. And it appears constantly on some of the most vile lists of movies or offensive movies or movies you've never heard of. It was on Shudder for a while. It still may be uh, available. I know it's very widely available on disc right now, but it's just something that's 
beyond unique with how it was approached and it's something I've talked about before that I'm very fond of. The New York style is very relevant in this and the presentation of New York City is just what kind of makes the movie itself is it's almost like a fictional environment and because it doesn't exist anymore that New York is completely gone so going back to it and being able to live in it a little bit just it's so out of this world it's very unique in its senses I'm going to use a word that no one has ever used in reference to street trash before and that word is restraint and the restraint that they like they did use for the film is it's very easy for things like this to push over into parody or kitsch. I mean, like, not that I dislike this director's work, but like John Waters films, especially in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, like they got very kitschy. They got very like stylized to a certain idea and vibe and almost like very over the top for the purpose of being kind of kitschy and weird. And this doesn't do that. This is like right Another perfect title for this film would be Naked Lunch. It's the thing that's right on your fork right fucking now. This is it. This is you can't get more stripped down in like a thing than street trash. It's bare bones like humanity all in one spot. And it's just and it's en- engaging and enjoyable to watch. I know a lot of people might disagree with me and think it's enjoyable to watch, but I can't think of a person who can like take this movie too seriously of like oh my god i can't believe they why would you put that in the movie we need to cancel this movie it's just like come on i mean this is south park before there was fucking south park there is something absolutely perfect and beautiful about street trash so there's no disagreement for me whatsoever i i think it's a, a great addition to our list of the greatest movies of all time and if you've not seen it it really needs to be observed especially if you're an exploitation or genre fan but it should have been seen at that point if you're a fan of Death by DVD, I feel. I'm not trying to be picky, but I think Street Trash is a classic. I think it's something that, like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Cannibal Holocaust, one of the entry-level uh, pieces that you, you get into, especially when it comes to the, the most acknowledged and well-known exploitation pieces. I think Street Trash is where you start seeing a contrast between art and politics and making the most shocking thing ever made. And pretty much fucking successful. Uh, it's just an amazing piece of artwork, like everything we've talked about tonight. And no real debates tonight about uh, if something is deserving or not. I think we're all pretty on board with everything each other picked. So another edition complete of the greatest hits of Death by DVD. The month of March, I guess, is sequel month. Last week you got uh, the... Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD number two with Axe and Beast and Heat. And this week you get The Greatest Hits of Death by DVD volume two. Uh, not a bad addition. Uh, a couple good things for you to watch. If everyone doesn't die of plague, we'll probably be back with something next week. Maybe. It's not plague, it's a virus. I'm sorry. We're not going to fearmonger on Death by DVD, but we might do some virus movies, maybe. To fearmonger. <laughs> I just want to talk about Virus with Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Sutherland and Peter Stormare and a bunch of other people. It's not a good movie, but I just... It is terrible. It is a terrible movie. I just have this information in my head, and I gotta get it out. Or I'm just gonna dream of bad boat movies. So the ashtray's full, the bottle's empty. We'll see you next week. Maybe. Maybe not. Have a Corona.
child I'll go But I'd rather be a wanderer To never go at all With pity there's just emptiness But with sorrow there comes joy And I would rather die in a hurricane Than to never I know I face them as my castle walls the fall. Oh, but I would let those castles tumble. I'd never love at touched me, touched my front, my front bottom. I'd sit down, I wasn't that perturbed. Now, I don't know whether they wanted me for a twos-up or something, I don't know how they work it, but I'll tell you what, it scared me. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.